Amen. All right. You can grab your Bible and take a seat. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some up here. And it looks like some folks wandering around with some. So, Stephen, if they don't have one on their lap, just give it to them. And when you get that Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. If you have a white or a blue Bible that we handed you, like the one I got up here, it's page 543. 543. Got some Illinois fans in the house that came while their team was playing in the tournament. So God bless you. Dear Lord, help Illinois win for the faithfulness of your followers to come to church during tournament time. A couple years ago, um, I was meeting with a couple pastors at a restaurant downtown and there was a TV. We had scheduled a pastor's meeting a long time beforehand. And so on the day that it came out, it ended up being Gonzaga's first round tournament game on the same day as the, our pastor's meeting. And we were like, should we cancel it? And they're like, no, 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 there's TVs there. We'll just eat together and watch it. And so we were watching the TVs and praying and talking with each other and meeting as there's like four of us pastors. And these people had been driving through town. They overheard us talking. And Gonzaga was playing Northwestern, and it was like getting down to the wire. It was pretty close, and like there was only like two minutes left. And they came up to us, and they're like, hey, are you guys Christians? We're like, yeah, we're actually a group of pastors. And like, oh, that's so great. And they're telling us their story. And we're kind of like looking over their shoulders at the game as it's going. And uh, they said, can we just pray for you guys real quick before we leave? And we were like, there's like a minute, 30 seconds left in the game. And they're like, up by two. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> And like she was not from uh, a short praying church wherever she was. So um, praise God they won that game. But I missed the last minute and a half along with my friends. So you're like sitting there like praying like, dear Lord, should I open my eyes right now or not? Anyway, um, that had nothing to do with anything. Uh, I'm a track coach. If you didn't know, some of you knew that, some of you didn't. But I coach track at North Central High School. I've been doing some sort of coaching for the last 20 years, which makes me... I hate saying that aloud because it just means I'm old. And um, I do weird things because I'm a track coach. Like I watch people walk and like I'll be in the mall and uh, I'll be like, that guy's pigeon toed. He should not play any sport where they have to cut or he's going to tear his ACL. Or I, you know, I'm like, that guy needs better shoes because his ankles are, you know, just different. The weird posture, like you need to, I, I think of all these things because I've been watching people run and move their bodies for a long period of time. And, uh, it's kind of funny to think about, but I think about this all the time when I watch people. It's like, when was the last time that person ran full speed? And it's funny to think about because you probably at some point in your life ran full speed and didn't even realize that was the last time you were going to run full speed. Right? As adults, we get to this, we do, we like, you're like thinking back, I was like, I was probably nine or, you know, whatever. Like, when was the last time you ran full speed? And there probably wasn't like some, you probably didn't know that was the last time. Like, God probably wasn't like reminding, like, hey, 12-year-old, this was the last time. Like, it's only downhill from here. Uh, there, you know, chariots of fire wasn't playing in the background. Like, and, and that's kind of funny when we think about running full speed. It gets a little more serious when you talk about other things that are happening in life. Like, the last time you talk to somebody, 
last time you'll see somebody, last time a family will all be together, the last time it'll, you'll have this experience, last time you'll get to say what you wanted to say. And Paul is going to get a gift this morning as we read through Acts chapter 22 in that he knows this is the last time that he is going to get to address a group of people that is very dear to his heart. And, and, and I bring all that up because if we knew the last time we were going to do some of these things, we might approach them differently, right? If we knew that was going to be the last time that this happened or this took place or we went down this road, we would go, oh, maybe I would have said things different. Maybe I would have spent some extra time. Maybe I would have been more patient. And so Paul's going to get this opportunity and he's going to get the gift of knowing that this is the last time that he's going to get to address these people. It's going to be a group of Jewish people. He's actually never had this opportunity before since he's been following Jesus to address uh, a large group of religious Jews. And uh, this is the group of people he came out from. If you remember, uh, Paul was raised. He's actually going to get into it in our text, but he was raised as a religious Jew, uh, a leader on the path to be training, highly educated, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but then Jesus met him, turned his life around, and for the last probably 15 to 20 years, he's been preaching the gospel, not in Jerusalem where he was trained up as a religious leader, but in like Greece and modern day Turkey and kind of in that area. And now he's actually come back. And uh, we talked about this as we were working through our through the book of Acts, uh, he came into Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. So the city, city's like swollen, like tons of new people from all over the place celebrating the feast. Um, the Jews saw him, recognized him from him preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Turkey and Greece and said, this is the guy that's telling everybody they don't have to follow the Jewish laws. And so they started beating him with the intention of killing him. The Roman official who was in charge saw him, uh, saw this commotion going on. There's like this fortress called the Antonio Fortress that looks down on the Temple Mount area. And so uh, the picture is like this Roman official is kind of looking down like, hey, there's a riot going on. So he runs down there with a group of Roman soldiers. They grab Paul so he doesn't get beat to death. The crowd's so angry that they have to like carry him up the stairs into this Antonio Fortress. Um, and as they're going up the stairs, the Roman official's like standing at the top still. And as they're like carrying Paul by, Paul's like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And so that's where we left it uh, last week in Acts chapter 21, verse 22. Um, uh, so we're actually going to pick it up. If you go from chapter 22 up uh, vertical in your Bible just a little bit, we're going to start verse 37. That's going to get us kind of the run in uh, for what we're going to talk about this morning. So. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 37, and then we're going to go all the way through 22. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, that's the Roman official, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, we're going to stop right there. Chapter 22, we're going to get into a second. Paul here is about to speak to these people for the last time. And here's why I wanted to pause right there. What do you expect he's about to say? This is a people who is dear to his heart. He grew up 
loving these people. He knows them. He's been in their shoes. He's been the, the training with them. Like this, this is the people he cares about more than any group of people on the planet. We see from his writings, he talks over and over about how much he wishes God would save the Jewish people and bring them to himself and follow Jesus and know salvation. So what do you expect him to say right now? It's the last time he's going to talk to them. He knows that. There's a couple ways I've, I think that he could probably go with this speech. Um, first of all, because these are his people, because these are the Jews, there are people who grew up like he did, worshipped like he did, thought like he did. Paul had been very open with the fact that the Jews held that special place, meaningful place in his heart. And these are now his people. So he could go that route, like, hey, you guys are my people, like, I, like, this is, that could be the direction he goes. The other direction he could go, like, he knows their struggles. Because he grew up with these people, because he grew up with their ideals, because he grew up with their teaching, he knows the pressure points, right? He knows exactly where it is that they would struggle. He knows what, what isn't making sense, what's hard for them. There's tons of things in life that you don't really know until you're actually in that spot. And then once you're in that spot, you can actually speak to other people who are in that spot. You know what I'm talking about? Like, for those of you who've had kids, I talked about this a little bit last week, but you bring home your first kid from the hospital, and you put him in the crib, and the first night, or maybe the second night, sometime definitely within the first week, you get this terrible thought that they have stopped breathing in their sleep. So what do you do? You, like, walk over to the crib, and you're, like, looking for motion, Right? You want to see just the, like, make sure they're breathing. And then if you don't, like, you lean down. So you're doing this like, awkward, like, silent, like, trying to hear them breathing thing. And that's something that every parent in the history of the world has done. And you won't know until you have a kid. And, and that's an experience thing, right? Once you're in that spot, then you, you know what it's like to, like, make sure your kid's breathing while they're sleeping. Paul knows what it's like to be a Jew in this scenario. He knows the judgment. He knows the rules. He knows the pressure. He knows the hypocrisy. So he could definitely go down those lines. He understands exactly what these people are going through. Not only does he know these people because they're his people, he knows their struggle, but he knows these people personally. He's probably looking out at a crowd that he spent we're guessing close to 20 years in this city being religiously trained, he's probably seeing people that know him, like that he knows by name, that know his story. He's like, I know you, and I know you, and I know you. And then add to the fact that the reason he is being beaten to death, basically, uh, in the lead up to being pulled up on this uh, top of these stairs and addressing the people is because they completely misunderstand and have misrepresented him. He's being lied about. So, so those are the things that are like influencing what he could say, what he's about to say. So which one of those do you choose, Paul? Like which option do you go with? Where do you start when you're about to say the last words to these people that is such a meaningful moment to you? I, there, I'm sure there's a million things going on in his mind. How long are they going to listen? Like, what, what should I start with? And all this stuff. And, and if he's going to go with the, like, hey, I know the Jewish system, he could, he could totally go with the correct doctrinal uh, statement speech. Like, he could do that. Paul is brilliant. He knows all their interpretations of the scripture. He knows where they're wrong. He could be the I'm right kind of guy. 
He'd be like, let me correct your thinking on this. That could be his speech. Absolutely. He could go with a very empathetic speech, right? I know how hard it is. I know the questions you're asking. I know how you have to follow all these rules and the pressure that the Jewish system puts on you. Jesus actually said, he said, you're putting burdens on people that they can't bear and you actually can't bear them. So it's a very pressure-filled religious system. He could be very empathetic. I know what you guys are. I have the answers to the question you're asking, but you're too scared to say out loud. He could go that direction right? He could go the personal route, right? Hey, Zachariah, like, we crashed your camel when I was 16, remember? Like, like, buddy, like, Abraham, we used to hit the falafel place after school. Like, that could have been, he could go, like, I know you people, you know me. Or he could go the I'm the victim here speech, right? You guys have it all wrong. You're saying lies about me. We need to stand up for justice. The things that are said about me aren't true. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done, right? He could play the victim card. So what's he going to do? Let's look. Chapter 22, verse 1. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as of all you are this day, as all of you are this day. Verse four, and I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who also were there and bring them into the bonds in Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heavenly sudden shone about me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And, so I, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I'm going to stop kind of in the middle of the speech because we talked just a moment ago about the ways Paul could address these final words to the Jewish people. And he doesn't do any of the things we said. He doesn't take the instructional corrective posture, 
right? He doesn't take the empathetic, like, I get it, guys, posture. He doesn't take the relational posture, like, hey, we're friends, you know me. And he doesn't take the victim posture of, like, you guys are the wrong thing that's wrong with, I got it right, you got it wrong. He doesn't take any of those postures. All Paul does was tell his story. This is what God has done for me. Paul shares his story, gives his testimony, bears witness. In fact, in verse 15, God told him this. I just want you to testify to what you've seen and heard. I love when the Bible is simpler than you expect it to be. Don't you love that when you're like reading through and you're like, man. Because sometimes we, we get this impression that the Christian faith is very complicated and difficult. And like... The Apostle Paul, if anyone on the planet had a complicated and difficult ministry to be called to, you would think it was him. And yet God summed it up in this. I just want you to testify to what you've seen and heard. That's it. Just open your mouth and say what you've seen and heard. And there's, there's two postures. We talked about the corrective posture he could have taken or the empathetic posture, or the victim posture, any of those postures he could have taken. The ones that he did choose to take... And we're going to talk about these more in a second, our humility and gratefulness. And we'll get into a second why that is and why that's such a big deal. But first, I want to ask another question. I just asked you a couple minutes ago, if you had one final thing to say, what would you say? I, I, hope, I hope you thought about that a little bit. Here's another question when it comes to the Apostle Paul. When do you think he decided what he was going to say? Like, if you had one last moment to say what you were going to say, when would be the appropriate time to decide the content of that message? You think the Apostle Paul just went up there and was like, well, I'm just going to make it up. You think that's the best way to handle it? I spent 10 years as a youth pastor, and uh, my first question with every kid I ever met with, because I was a little bit famous for, like, if a guy got a girlfriend in my youth group, I was like, let's go for coffee. And it was, like, a big joke with all of them. And so the first question I asked this boy that just got a girlfriend for his first time in high school, he's, like, a sophomore or junior or something like that, you know, I'd sit, we'd sit down and be like, so where are you going to draw the line? What do you mean? Where are you going to stop? Are you going to have sex before you're married? And they get the deer in the headlights. No. Where are you going to draw the line? I don't know. Well, when are you going to decide? Because it seems like the time to decide would be now, not when you're parked on a hill overlooking the city with nobody around at midnight, right? Like, that's a bad time to decide. I can tell you, you're going to make a bad decision then if you wait till then to make the choice. So let's bring it back to this choice. When are you going to decide what you're going to say? When's the appropriate time to decide what you're going to say? I would contend that the Apostle Paul had decided long beforehand what he was going to say in this moment. In fact, I told you we'd be going back to this verse because it's going to be framing the entirety of the rest of the book. But a couple chapters ago in Acts chapter 20, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said this. I'm going to put it on the screen uh, just to kind of remind you. Um, he said, I do not count my life of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace 
of God. Leave that up there for a second for me. I love this verse, and we've talked about it ad nauseum for the last couple weeks because I think it's so powerful. But it gets a little christian easy in some parts of it. christian easy is like, like christian easy is like the language that the church people use. You know, when you use words, they use in church, but you don't use them anywhere else. And there's three words in particular that like are church words and nobody in the outside the church uses them. It's at the end. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Testify is one of those words that we don't use outside of like maybe court and church, right? Testify simply means what we just talked about, just to say what you've seen and heard. That's all it is. Just say what you've seen and heard. Just this is the truth. Like this, I'm an example or I am a witness to what has happened. The next word that's kind of Christian easy that we don't use a lot outside of the church, gospel, that literally means good news. That's a literal interpretation. It just means good news, right? So Paul here is just saying, the course that I need to finish, the race that I need to run, the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ is to say or to be an example of the good news of the grace of God. Grace is another word we don't use outside of church very much. What's grace? Undeserved kindness. If it was deserved, it's no longer grace. It's wages, right? So undeserved, like his goodness towards me that I did not deserve. So just a very simple understanding of this without the Christianese, like Paul just said, my race, the thing God has called me to do is to say what I've seen and heard, the good news that God has been good to me in ways I do not deserve. Again, so simple. So simple. And, and if you look at it, if you look at this last speech with that lens, right, this is exactly what he's doing. He's just proclaiming the goodness of God. He's just relaying to these people how good God is in ways that he did not deserve over and over and over again. In fact, as you go through this, Paul goes out of his way to point out how little he deserved the goodness of God in this speech. He starts off by telling them about his former life and his training and how he lived, but then the story is of how God broke in and changed his life. There's no self-promotion in this story. Paul is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. Did you get that as you're reading through? Like, at the end of it, like, there's no, Paul doesn't say, like, well, I studied so much, and I thought through my doctrine so thoroughly that my understanding of the error in my ways became apparent to me. No! He doesn't say that. He's not like, oh, I just was really smart, and so I figured it out. No, he's like, I was really stupid. I was on a road to nowhere, and I never would have figured it out unless a bright light shone from heaven in the middle of the day and knocked me on my butt. Like, I, w- I didn't figure out that I was going the wrong way. God stepped in and changed my life. And Paul doesn't, like, he doesn't, like, so I came up with a strategy for evangelism, and we had a mission statement and some core values, and we had a social media profile, and we're, like, marketing. He doesn't say any of that, right? He says, I was so confused. I was blind. I had to have people lead me by the hand. I didn't know what to do. I stood up, and God said, go to Damascus. And he's like, Okay, right? Like, there is no Paul self-magnification in this story. 
You don't get to the end of this and hear Paul as the hero. You hear God as the hero. Do you hear the tones of gratefulness and humility in the story? Like this isn't a story of how great Paul is. It's how God broke into Paul's darkness and gave him undeserved kindness. And you get the sense that as Paul is telling this, there's not only humility, but a gratefulness. You know, there's no argument against humility and gratefulness. There's nobody that's going to be like, you know, your humility and grateful heart is really inappropriate right now. I wish you would just tone that gratefulness back a little bit because it's just inappropriate. Like the never, there's no moments of your life where humility and gratefulness are not appropriate. Like it, and humility and gratefulness are always tied together because your humility dictates how much you think you need to be grateful for. Prideful people aren't grateful for very much because they don't think they need very much. If you're a prideful person, you don't realize how much you need, and so you don't realize how much you should be grateful for. And I'm not talking fake humility here. Paul is not admitting some ambiguous, distant, like no accountability thing to make himself look humble. He's not posturing himself as, a, oh, he's just such a bad person, but God, just save me. No, Paul is actually confessing very specific instances of failure that he needed God's grace to overcome. You see that? Think about this for a second. Paul is confessing to aiding in the murder of Stephen. In fact, in Paul's own words, he calls himself a murderer later on. Where was Stephen murdered? In Jerusalem. Where is Paul giving this speech? In Jerusalem. So Paul is looking out to people who maybe were involved in the murder of Stephen. He's looking out to people who are probably friends of Stephen, maybe even family of Stephen. We know for sure that Peter and John, who are in the church and in Jerusalem at the time and probably are witnessing this whole thing go down, were great friends with Stephen. Like they elevated him to the position of deacon early in Acts and, and were brothers in Christ, like side by side, leading the church. And then, like, Paul murdered that guy. That's a humbling thing. And that's a very specific and open and honest and vulnerable thing that Paul has confessed here. And it sounds almost nothing like the way we usually talk to each other in the church in 2022. Our confession in the church is usually very undefined, very candy-coated versions of our story that are designed not to make God be super glorified, but are to preserve our pride. And it sounds all like this, oh yeah, God's so good, I'm so thankful for his grace when I mess up and make mistakes. And what happens is if, if the depth of your humility stops at mess up and make mistakes, then the depth of your gratefulness is also shallow, right? <laughs> when we talk to people, there's a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding and lost my temper, and I could have done better. But there's not a lot of specific instances of actual confessed sin that people admit they need to be forgiven of and saved from. And we do that because we're not humble and therefore we're minimally grateful. You don't cultivate gratefulness when the worst sin you think you've committed is miscommunication. 
hey, uh, do you guys have any suggestions for like marital counseling? Yeah, what's going on? Oh, we're just miscommunicating. Okay, right now I'm not trying to like poke at anybody here, right? I'm not trying to make everybody feel terrible, but I'm pointing this out because what happens when we keep that like hidden is not only are we self-deceived, but we limit the way God can use your story to then encourage the rest of the body of Christ. I've seen it happen over and over again, right? People have like terrible marriages and they're like really hard, but they don't tell anybody. They just pretend. And then we don't see him for a couple months. And then God does an amazing thing and like reconciles the marriage. And they walk back into church. And if we all knew what was going on, we would be rejoicing in the Lord. Like, Hallelujah. Like this is good. Like you're walking back in with your wife hand in hand, sitting next to each other, reading the word of God, worshiping together. This is something that should be celebrated. And nobody's celebrating. Why? Because you didn't tell anybody how bad it really was. There's people that go to church who have given up alcohol, which should be celebrated because they had a problem. But what happened was they never told anybody they have a problem. So when they give up alcohol, they didn't tell anybody that either. So nobody celebrates with them. We just come in and like, oh, cool. Andrew made it to church today. If your name's Andrew, I just made that up. Right? Hopefully the, the new guy's like, he's talking to me. I wasn't. I just made that up. <laughs> Paul here is brutally honest with exactly what God has saved him from. And I'm pretty sure he didn't just decide to be that transparent in this moment. We talked about it just a second ago. When's the appropriate time to decide what you're going to say? Far beforehand right? That verse was on the screen. He had decided that whatever was in front of him, he was going to testify. He was going to say and be an example of the good news that God had showed him undeserved kindness, no matter what was in front of him. I believe Paul decided long beforehand, whatever's in front of me, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open my mouth and tell of the goodness of God, not in a way to hide my pride, to, oh, I just had some miscommunication, some things that I had to get over, but in a way to glorify God and make him the hero of the story. This has actually been happening in our church in a very real way over the last couple of months, which is pretty exciting. And if you've been in a small group, you've been interacting with the people of this church, there's been a group of people who have been walking in this type of thing and confessing and repenting of sin, and it's been awesome. Hard, but awesome. Okay? And so that's why I wanted to point this out here, because they're in good company. Paul doesn't give this speech and be like, hey, you know what? I made some mistakes, guys. Nobody's perfect. We just read a verse where he said, I watched Stephen get murdered and took my part in it. That was 20 years ago, Paul. Get over it, man. You don't need to be that specific. Paul needed to remind himself, but not only the people who are listening, that our great God can save to the uttermost, which is the words he'll use later as he writes letters to the churches. I, I believe Paul decided long beforehand exactly what he was going to say. 
He decided long before him he was going to be brutally honest with exactly what God had saved him from. And I don't know what opportunities God is going to put in your life, in your path, to speak into someone else's life, to be an example, a witness of how good God has been. But I would tell you that maybe you should decide this morning what you're going to say. Maybe the time to decide if you're going to be honest and vulnerable is not right when that moment comes. Maybe you decide this morning. Maybe you decide right now how honest you're going to be and how grateful and humble your story is going to come across. Look at the story. I've got to finish up here. It takes a crazy turn. Watch this. Verse 21. He's continuing. So he says, "I, I, I sat there and I murdered Stephen. And then he said to me, so God is speaking to Paul. And Paul's like, but they watched me murder Stephen. They're not going to hate me. And God said to me, go. For I will send you, verse 21, far away to the Gentiles, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So Paul is telling his story here. And in verse 16, Paul gives his testimony. He says, I got up and was baptized in the name of Jesus and washed away all my sin. And none of the Jews say anything. You would expect that that's the thing they would have a problem with, right? Paul's standing in front of these Jews and he's like, and I followed Jesus and he washed away all my sin. And the Jews are like, still listening, like, hmm, sounds good. Great, tell us more. And you're like, wait, what? You guys don't care about this? And nobody says anything. They keep listening. No problem, which is weird because I would have thought the Jews would have a problem with Jesus, but they don't. But what they do have a problem with is when Paul says, God sent me to the Gentiles. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like through the roof, freaking out. That's enough. Get this guy off stage. Kill him. Which is interesting because it's a lot more of a race issue than it is a theology issue. (laughs) The Jews are like, oh, we just don't believe in Jesus. And like, actually, you just don't like people who are different from you. Like the problem that actually hits the nerve in their soul is not Jesus saving people from their sins. It's God calling someone to go to the Gentiles. That's got to be like, it's a pretty prideful thing to have a word for everybody who's not your race. (laughs) So like the word Gentile just means not Jewish. So like people who are not like us. And this is actually really common. People say that their objection to Christianity is doctrinal. We're like, oh, there's some things I don't believe. And actually, when you dig a little bit, there's actually just some sin that they don't want to let go of. And so even before, like when I said this thing about how Paul was super honest, there's some of you who are like, I'm never doing that because I don't actually want to confess my sin and be vulnerable in front of anybody. And then in order to cover for yourself, because nobody wants to be like, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. and I never want to be honest. You have a doctrinal idea that you can like, blanket over that like a band-aid so no one will look underneath the, the, the rug. And that's exactly what's happening here, right? They're saying that they don't believe in Jesus, but what they're really acting like is they don't want to reach out to the Gentiles. So everybody freaks out, and the Roman official sees this. Remember, 
Paul is standing on the front steps, looking down on this crowd of people. The Roman official is probably standing next to him. And apparently the Roman official didn't understand Hebrew or something along those lines. Because when Paul says this, maybe he just didn't understand Hebrew enough to get the details of what Paul was saying. Paul says this, they start freaking out. And the Roman official is like, grab that guy, beat him with whips until he tells us what he said. Verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So there's a justice system that only applied to Roman citizens because this territory was occupied by Roman government. And apparently the Roman citizens were not allowed to be arrested without a trial, let alone tortured by flogging. So look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the soldier gets the orders to go beat this man by flogging. Paul says, interesting. I didn't think you were allowed to do this to Roman citizens. The guy's like, you're a Roman citizen, right? So he goes to the Roman official and says, you're going to get yourself in real trouble if you order the arrest and flogging of a Roman citizen without a trial. So the tribune came and said to him, verse 27, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I've bought my citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The story here takes a weird turn. And I wonder if this weird turn doesn't give us some insight into a question that is kind of odd if you think about it big picture wise. Paul was this guy who would, had been trained as a Jewish religious leader, highly educated, well thought of, very well known teacher in Gamaliel and, and knew the Jewish system inside and out, brilliant theologian, knew Old Testament verses, all of this stuff. If you would have thought like if you would have like in a lab created the perfect person to preach the gospel to the religious Jewish community, it would have been Paul. And yet when God calls Paul, he actually doesn't call him to the Jews. He calls him to the Gentiles. And you're like, that's weird. And then Peter, who, if you remember from the gospel accounts, was a fisherman like from the north end of the country where they talked slow and used small words and had funny accents and everybody thought they were unintelligent. That's the guy that God called to Jerusalem, which is where, so if you're looking at this and you're like, wait, God, I think you, I think you, you sent the wrong person to the wrong place. Right? You should have sent Paul to Jerusalem. You should have sent Peter to the Gentiles. Like This doesn't make sense that you sent a highly educated Jewish man to the Gentiles and the uneducated fisherman with the funny accent to the Jews. That doesn't make any sense. Paul was highly educated, religiously trained, Jewish, but he had a Roman citizenship, which Peter did not have. And now you see these things start to form and start to take shape as Paul uses his Roman citizenship to then influence how the direction of his life is taking shape. And you realize Peter never had a Roman citizenship and so would not have been able to travel as freely and do as many of the things among the Gentiles as he thought. So we have this 
God seemed perfect for going to the Jews, and God called him to the Gentiles. And then we have this guy that seems not perfect for going to the Jews, right? This impulsive, uneducated fisherman. Oh, and by the way, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he was like, get away from me. I never knew Jesus, right? So they got Jesus on trial, and they're like, do you know this guy? And he's like, no. And that's who God called to Jerusalem to start the church there. And it, 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 makes, me, it makes me wonder, because so many times I walk into things and I think like, oh, this probably is not for me. I probably can't reach these people. I, I'm probably not supposed to do this. This probably is not the opportunity. Like, this is just a grocery store. I don't need to preach a gospel at the grocery store. And, and, and it occurs to me, if we go back to what we talked about earlier, if you decide what you're going to say, maybe you should trust God for who you're going to say it to. If you decide that you're just going to be a person who testifies of the goodness of the gospel and the grace of God, the unmerited favor and kindness that he has extended to you, maybe you should trust then that when you come face to face with someone who wants a conversation, that God orchestrated that. If we be the people that decide what we're going to say, then we can trust God that he's going to put us where he wants us to be. This has been so clear to me uh, recently as I've, I've seen God put people in different places, in different opportunities, and they're going like, I didn't think that I could be doing this. And God's like, that's exactly why I chose you. Like, it's not an accident that God has put you where he's put you and given you the story that he's given you. Use it. Use it for his goodness. Maybe at the end of the day, God actually knows what he's doing. It's a novel thought, right? Maybe the people that are in your life and the opportunities he's put in front of you are exactly the thing that he wants to use to make your life build his kingdom and, and know his glory and joy. Um, we're going to pick up Acts chapter 23 next week, and uh, I'll finish there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for uh, the way it encourages hearts, Lord. And I pray that we would be a people who just, just simply testify of what we've seen and heard, what we've watched you do, how you've been good to us in ways that we don't deserve. And Lord, if you put us in situations uh, to preach that news, that message, uh, may we have the courage to do it, Lord. Even if we don't understand the people you've called us to or the circumstances we're in, Lord. Uh, may we be witnesses. May we be lights. May we be examples of your good news. Father, I thank you for everybody you've brought here this morning. I pray that the story of uh, Paul being honest and vulnerable would be an encouragement to them. May we be a people who decide right now that we're going to finish our course and testify of how good you've been. We ask you in your name.